0: recently, I was remembering an occasion uh, as a very junior monk when I went to visit our teacher Finjan cha and I was sitting round informally, and I forget how many people were there now, however he addressed me directly and asked me how things were going on at our monastery where the Western monks were living. And I proceeded to, in my rather clumsy grasp of the Thai language, to talk about how things were going at Wat Ba Na And everybody started laughing. He was giggling away. And and uh, I kept going on about, oh, Wat what, what Na and. I thought I was talking about uh, the International Forest Monastery. What I should have really been saying was, What Ba Nana na, Chad? And my mispronunciation meant that I was saying the International Crazy Monastery. What Ba nanachard? These mad Westerners. Oh, what Ba Nana na, Chad? And I thought it was all very funny and giggling away. And Fair enough, it was funny. <laughs> The uh, illustration uh, I I mean to raise is how just one small mispronunciation or maybe mistranslation can have a very big effect and how we, for instance, interpret the Buddha's teachings, how we understand them, how we pick them up. The Buddha's teachings uh, can rightly be understood as, as a medicine for... The heart that is suffering from the disease of unawareness and, and the Buddha's teachings are medicine aimed at curing this disease of unawareness however we need to be taking the right kind of medicine at the right time in the right way and if we're not then it's not necessarily going to work which is a great pity because we might be having good intention and making a lot of good effort but just a little bit of Misunderstanding can have a, a big effect. And some of you will have heard me speak before about the way that the word buddho is translated from Pali into Thai, the word buddho, Theravadan forest tradition of Thailand using buddho as a meditation object, breathing in put, breathing out oh, ho, or the name of the Buddha, buddho. and. In Thai when they translate that it's Duopuru and then Westerners have translated the Thai words of Duapuru as the one who knows, which is technically not inaccurate. However, I would suggest that has a very different connotation from what is meant in Thai. If you say the one who knows, it's like it's like endorsing the idea that there's somebody there knowing, which is definitely not what. These teachings are aiming at We're not looking for some ultimate self, some ultimate somebody who's knowing what's going on. And so, technically, translating dua puru as the one who knows I mean, all right. In the terms of form, in the terms of spirit, it would be better translated as selfless just knowing. Breathing in, breathing out, selfless just knowing. So, again, just as an illustration, how. Within this tradition, there's these renderings of the teachings that condition how, we, how we're affected by, by how, we, how these teachings are translated and how we pick them up. A similar thing happens with the Pali word jitta. The Thai rendering is the word jit. And so often you'll hear the teachers talking about, do jit. Son jit hai ruchat, raksa jit, tam hai Jit, understand as heart. You know, teaching your heart, protecting your heart, uh, letting the heart be peaceful. However, in English, often it's translated as watching your mind, protecting your mind, you know, making your mind peaceful. How does that affect us when we when we hear that, like the word mind, you ask most English-speaking people where their mind is and they point to their head. However, I'm sure that our Thai teachers would not be saying "do samong, raksa samong, tamhai samong samong. You know, like watching your brain, and looking after your brain, training your brain, making your brain peaceful. It doesn't make sense. So we need to be careful that the assumptions that we bring into these teachings are not conditioning our approach in an unhelpful way. So this, Particularly this word, jit, like watching your mind, what do we really understand by that? If we think that being mindful or watching our mind means looking at our head, and we're approaching the Dhamma by thinking, by merely thinking, then we're going to be very disappointed the concepts we have about practice are of course very useful very helpful however they're not the point that's not what the teachings are pointing to not to our heads not to the abstractions like the, the word clinging you know, and just now we were chanting the dhamma chakra vatana sutta and talking about how upadana is the cause of suffering, upadana, which translates in English as clinging. The concept of clinging, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it's useful, we can think about it. However, what's the reality? What is the reality of clinging? Yeah. Or grasping? Often there's a discussion in, amongst Buddhists about how you've got to get rid of desire. Whereas actually... What the Buddha said was, we need to be free from craving. And there's a big difference between craving and desire. Hmm. On a conceptual level, they sort of sound similar. And some people think are the same. However, the Buddha had desires. He wanted to help people, thank goodness. He wanted to go for a walk. He wanted to rest. He had wanting, he had desires. However, the way the Buddha had wanting was free from something, he called it upadana. However, the concept of upadana, the actuality of upadana is very different. The concept is like, it's an approximation, it's like it's like a photograph. If somebody's looking at a photograph of an orange, and you say, what are you looking at? You say, oh, I'm looking at an orange. And then you look and say, well, that's not an orange. Doesn't smell like an orange, doesn't taste like an orange. It's an approximation of an orange. It's a photograph of an orange. It's not an orange. And this is important when we're talking about our mind and the place of thinking and what we're really doing in practice. We need to do much more than have a nice arrangement of concepts about the cause of suffering. The Buddha was pointing towards something when he. He said that Upadhana needs to be let go of. It was pointing towards an experience that's happening on the heart level, not merely a concept of clinging in our heads. And if we don't really get what the Buddha's pointing at, we don't really understand it, it's like you know, like you point towards something. If you're trying to teach a dog to look in a certain direction, the dog just looks at your finger, it doesn't look in the direction. And we sometimes do something similar with these teachings instead of looking in the direction the Buddha was pointing, which is towards where the pain really exists, where the suffering really exists, where we're doing what we're doing, which turns life into a problem. And it's not necessarily happening in our heads, it's happening in our arms. So if we don't get this, it's like the Buddha prescribes the medicine, but we don't take the medicine. We take the wrong medicine or we take it in the wrong way. Like if you've got, Suffering from the disease of diabetes, and you go to see the doctor and and the doctor prescribes insulin and gives you the injections and tells you how to take them when to take them and then and then when you go home and you're not feeling so good, and so you take a, some paracetamol to to alleviate the painful feelings and it's not going to work and it might look like it worked and paracetamol might mask the symptoms. And likewise, when we think about Dhamma, because we've got these really nice, tidy concepts about reality, we might have momentary good feeling about our understanding regarding the cause of our suffering. That's not the same thing as as identifying the location of the suffering in our hearts and ceasing from doing what we're doing that's turning the normal painful feelings of life into a problem. The reason the Buddha was awakened was not because he didn't experience any pain. The Buddha did experience pain. However, he didn't experience suffering because he had stopped doing what we're still doing, which is collapsing a heart awareness. And, uh, in our heads we think, and that's useful. However, in our hearts we feel. In our bodies, in our guts we feel, and we need to bring our awareness down into our bodies. You know, look in the direction to which the Buddha was pointing, not merely look at the finger, not merely hold on to these wonderful, impressive approximations of Dhamma. These words are not Dhamma. That which the Buddha was pointing towards, that's what he wanted us to see. There are a lot of people around who are unfortunately very committed to practicing meditation techniques when In fact, what they're doing is feeding compulsive behavior. I don't know if you've ever met the meditators who do what's called a noting technique. And unfortunately, they're doing it in a a way whereby they're practicing with their heads rather than with their whole being. And so I remember meeting somebody who was very distressed, committed and dedicated and this technique of Noting everything you're doing, reaching, 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 touching, 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 biting, 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 tasting, tasting. What they're really doing is merely thinking, They're not experiencing the whole being awareness. It's this unfortunate condition of being identified as our thoughts, identified up in our heads. And it's so fascinating. What we can do with our heads is so fascinating. However, it doesn't cure the disease. Please don't hear this as an intellectual argument that you have to agree with a disagreement, but rather as an encouragement to let go of the obsession with the approximations, with the concepts, as beautiful and as fascinating as they can be, let go of that, find a way of experimenting with... A feeling of awareness. That's the medicine that the Buddha wants us to take. You don't want a child to touch the stove. It's black. and You can't tell from looking at it that it's going to burn you. You'll try to have a reasoned conversation with the child. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. It doesn't mean anything. Only when they, their hand gets close to the stove and they feel like it's about to hurt them. That feeling is the teaching. The mindfulness of Dukkha is not the idea of dukkha, it's an experience, a sensation, it's an ouch, it's that ouch, and there's something we can do about that. Mm -hmm. Instead of collapsing around it and indulging in that feeling, we can inhibit it and open up and expand the awareness and consider that there's a choice whether we cling or not. Like if your mindfulness is sharp enough, crisp enough, if the quality of presence is alive enough, then when you're about to collapse around a sensation of, for instance, disliking, maybe some dislikable event happens, a noise, something happens, and and you're about to collapse around it and you, you remember and inhibit that tendency and go in the opposite direction and simply feel what it feels like disagreeability and inhibit the tendency to cling. That's very different from thinking, oh, clinging causes suffering." Very different. And it's taking place in a different dimension of our being. Coming down out of our head into our chest, literally into the centre of our chests. The medicine is feeling awareness, not conceptual awareness. And we need to be taking this medicine correctly if we want, which of course we all do, the cure from the disease we're all suffering. Somebody recently asked me, uh, related to this, how do you reactivate the heart aliveness? They were acknowledging how they didn't feel particularly alive on the heart level, and their feeling awareness wasn't functional. And I suggested that we'll get interested in it, get interested in what it feels like In your chest, literally, stop thinking. Just stop following all those fascinating proliferations and speculations and and bring the awareness down to the center of your chest and feel what it feels like. And it may be uncomfortable. Often it is uncomfortable in the beginning. When the energy of attention starts to flow through that area, which we've ignored for a long time, the experience I've mentioned before of like if you've been out skiing or you've been outside with our gloves on in the frost and your fingers are are really, really cold and you you come back inside and you put your hands in 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 warm water. Ouch! As the energy starts to flow through those fingers again, there's a pain there. Well, likewise with our hearts, when we've not been paying attention, when we've been distracted by the fascinating carry-on in our heads, which it's perfectly understandable that it happens that way, However, that fascination becomes an addiction. Mm-hmm. If We've been following that addiction for too long because we don't want to feel the pain of life, the pain of disappointment, the pain of sadness, the pain of confusion, the pain of anger, pain of loss, which everybody feels, everybody experiences it. If we indulge in this habit of, of thinking and finding identity in our the thinking, then we forget that we've even got a heart. We can forget that we feel in our belly. And the result is we go out of balance. And that's what many people are experiencing a lot of the time. That sometimes very acutely out of balance and confused. And What's wrong with the world? Well, there's not necessarily anything wrong with the world. The world's always been this way. Sight, sound, smell, taste and so on. There's what's going on in the world? Senses and sense objects. It's always been this way. What we add to it is an imbalanced, inaccurate, incorrect perception arising out of being disconnected, being disembodied, being lost in our heads, basically. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't be studying or shouldn't be using thinking. It's a wonderful tool. However, finding identity in the thinking mind is very unsatisfactory the Buddhist medicine is to cultivate a feeling awareness and not just always be thinking about the Dhamma. Some of you might have read a transcribed talk that is called, What is Contemplation? And, and it's uh, one of my favourite talks that Ajahn Chah gave. I've listened to the tape recording of it many times. There was a, an Australian monk there, a French monk there, and a Japanese monk, and they were asking Ajahn Chah, what is contemplation, Longpo? What is it actually? What is contemplation? Is it the same as thinking and thinking about this and thinking about that? And Ajahn patiently explains. Yes, yes, it starts off with thinking, and the expression uses "keep yap yap," which is a coarse level of thinking. But then he said, and then it progresses into "keep na which is thinking and stillness or or peaceful which I would suggest is what we're talking about here is a feeling inquiry. A conceptual inquiry deepens into a feeling inquiry. The conceptual inquiry, it, it's like establishes pathways in our heart so that when the time comes we need to investigate a feeling. We don't have to be thinking up in our heads. We can allow our attention to go down that pathway and feel the actuality and to consider the choice we have You can collapse around this feeling of sadness and become sad. You can collapse around this feeling of anger and become angry. You can collapse around this feeling of indignation and become indignant. You can collapse around this feeling of loneliness and become lonely. Or, if you've got a free feeling level of awareness, there's the possibility of expanding, opening the heart, and feel it as a feeling. Make the effort to feel to the edges of that feeling. We'll make the suggestion to it. Can you feel the edges of that feeling and maybe drop in the suggestion, feel beyond that feeling with the idea of there being a context in which that feeling is arising and ceasing
1: mm. as an
0: image, as a suggestion. Don't don't take this as something literal. Then. What is he talking about a context and trying to figure it out? Rather, as a suggestion to change our relationship to the feeling so we're not being pulled into the vortex of identification with the activity of the heart and mind, rather learning how to truly meet ourselves and then let go. Just rearranging the information is not going to do it. Just dealing with the data, the approximations is not going to do it. As this person was asking the other day, how do you, how do you reactivate Aliveness on the heart level, get interested in how painful it feels on that level, in that dimension, in the centre of the chest, to be unaware, gently holding attention there in the centre of the chest. And if it aches, no judgement. Just remember that as aliveness is reactivated, it's quite okay that it hurts. They're not forcing anything, not rushing anything allowing have the possibility of returning to balance. If this is not understood, then it's the case for many people, I would suggest a lot of Buddhists, that they they don't get beyond the concepts, they don't get beyond the ideas, they don't get beyond trying to understand Dhamma. The other day somebody wrote to me, they'd been reading something I'd written and they wrote to me asking, What did you really mean by this? I wrote back to them saying, well, I recommend that you let your question percolate, is the word I use, for a while and see what appears. And a few days later, they wrote back and they said that they'd fed their question into AI and they quoted to me what Chatbot had said back to them, which was fascinating. But that's as far as it went. It was fascinating. I'm sure it didn't transform their relationship to their desire to want to understand. He was asking me because he wanted to understand. He wanted to be free from the suffering of not understanding. He wanted to understand what I was referring to when I wrote such and such. That's fine. That's great. However, because he was lost in wanting to understand, he was craving understanding, he was suffering. So instead of allowing his question to percolate, and to feel that interest in understanding, and to feel to the edges of the the frustration, and to maybe feel beyond it, and then discovering a transformed relationship with wanting to understand, which would have been, he would have been at ease with not understanding. If you're addicted to conceptual understanding, well, that's no good, I don't want to arrive at a being comfortable with not understanding. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable with not understanding. That's just being honest. The truth is we don't understand very much at all, most of the time. There's progress to really realise that we don't understand and to be okay about not understanding and to feel peaceful with not understanding. That's not a compromising of interest. That's not an abdication. That's coming into a conscious relationship with wanting to understand rather than obsessive craving to understand, which is hot and bothered. So there's training our attention in the direction of cultivating a feeling awareness so that the medicine that the Buddha gave us, we're actually taking it in the right way, not just staying up in our heads and like the medicine the doctor gives us, we put in the cupboard and look at it or or take some other medicine, wonder why it doesn't work, wonder why we're not getting any better, wonder why we're not increasing in our capacity to accommodate the uncertainty of life and the ambiguity of life, the disappointment of life. If we're practicing rightly, well, that would be what we could expect, to not be defined by what's going on around us, to be able to keep an open heart and a clear head even when we feel disappointed, even when we feel frustrated, confused. Related to this, somewhat different area, and I think it's, it's related, and it's still worth thinking about is, in terms of society, looking at how we deal with people who behave in ways considered as improper. Basically, I'm talking about the prison system. How do we treat people who behave in ways that society deems as inappropriate? You look at prisoners. What What state of heart, what state of mind are these people in? Most of them are confused, unhappy, and angry. And what does society do with these confused, unhappy, and angry people? Puts them in an environment where they're surrounded by other unhappy, confused, angry people. And are they treated with compassion? Are they treated with understanding? Or this punitive approach of they've got to be punished, is that going to work? Is that going to help? Is that going to help, really? Again, it's like the Buddha's teachings. If we don't apply them in the right way, they don't help. Surely we all need help. Certainly we all need help. So this example of how prisoners are treated. The Buddha's teaching is never by hatred is hatred conquered by non-hatred alone is hatred conquered. This is eternal law. If you look at the recidivism rate in Britain, it's frighteningly high and you compare it to, for instance, Norway, which is famously low. What's the difference? Well, if you look at the way prisoners are treated in Norway, it's very different. Now, I know statistics can be manipulated and... There's all sorts of different conditions that need to be factored in. However, the evidence is that the rate in Norway is lower than it is in Britain. And I think, if I remember rightly, there's a British government website that I looked at, which was analysing the, the, why people re-offend when they come out of prison in Britain. And it, it identified the hurt that these people experienced early on in life. These people are injured, being subjected to the hatred of others, or witnessing the hatred of others. As children, they get hurt, they get injured, either by commission or by omission, by things that happened or things that didn't happen, they get injured. And these injured beings end up confused, sad and angry. That's normal. There's the cause, there's the effect. That's the predicament that they're in, and then they behave accordingly, and then how are they treated? They're put in an environment surrounded by other desperately hurt, sad, angry, confused people, and how are they treated? Personally, I think it's tragic. I would suggest. I don't expect. (laughs) I don't expect they're going to listen to me, but. I would suggest that all prison wardens, and actually for that matter all politicians who like make the laws about how prisoners are treated, they should all be supported, they should be paid and encouraged to go on a one-week silent meditation retreat every year. And if you go on a silent meditation retreat, maybe you get to know yourself a little bit better, a lot better. Maybe then you can help yourself and then... If you can help yourself, then you'll be in a position to be able to help others. Mm. Real compassion and and real understanding Mm. comes out of studying our own hearts and minds. Mm. Not just thinking about how you've got to punish people for having been bad. Mm. Where does that come from? Like hurting people who have been already hurt. Mm. There's no wisdom in that. So the medicine that we apply to the condition that we find ourselves in, whether with ourselves or within society, the Buddha's teaching, like in this case, this this Dhammapada verse that I quoted, verse number five, never by hatred is hatred conquered, by non-hatred alone is hatred conquered. This is eternal law. Or we could... Render it. We could change the translation, change the wording. Instead of hatred, we use the word unlove. Never by unlove is unlove dispelled. By compassion alone is unlove dispelled. This is eternal law. Thank you very much, Ms. evening Fjord.